these days it's just it's like the gloves are off you know it's like a ufc cage fight there's no rules um they attack at random moments you know you see a group attacking and i'm like what the hell are they doing that for next minute they got six minutes and they win the race you know there's the kind of rule book's been almost thrown out the window and especially this year you know watching these young guys come through pogachar thinking that the classics were kind of going to be oh shit there's no cancellar or boonan anymore you know who are we going to watch sargon's kind of you know an absolute legend but isn't hitting his same heights and then all of a sudden we've got walt van art and ala philippe and um and you know vanderpol and it's like holy shit we got these guys for another 10 or 15 years how cool is this the tour down under has become the kickoff race for the world tour attracting some of the sport's biggest names to the sunny streets of Adelaide, Australia each year. However, with the pandemic worsening around the world, unfortunately, the TDU announced this week it was going to have to postpone the event. And so we caught up with cycling legend and Tour Down Under's new race director, Stuart O'Grady, to talk about the decision to postpone, as well as what he sees in the future for the event. Hello and welcome to another episode of Put Your Socks On. My name is Angus Morton and as per usual, I'm joined by Bobby J. Bobby, how you doing? All good, Gus. was uh, interesting last week with all the election stuff, but that's all behind us now. We're moving forward. Weather's still good here. Got our last little dose of cycling and, and now it's time to think about moving into the off season, right? Yeah, it is. And, and you're right there, Bobby. It feels like uh, a month has passed in the last week. But um, it was great to see some really good bike racing and uh, the coming to an end, sort of, for the road season uh, in 2020. And uh, yeah, we do. We start to look towards 2021. And, you know, I guess maybe no more certain as to what the, what the early season holds for the sport of cycling. But uh, certainly a lot to think about after the 2020 year. Let's talk about the Vuelta, the final week of the Spanish Grand Tour. Stage 13, right after the rest day, is where we left off. And that, of course, turned out to be, like we all predicted, kind of the the deciding factor in the race. And we knew it was going to be an, an important stage. But in hindsight, despite all the talks about time bonuses and whatnot, this is where Primus Rolich won, won the 2020 Vuelta by taking 49 seconds out of Richard Carapaz. I don't think much can be disputed when you look back at that result. I know there was a lot of people talking about time bonuses and that's how he won the, the Vuelta this year, but no, it was it was on this stage. But the story for me outside of the expected result there was American Will Barta from the CCC team. I mean, come on, what a ride that was. I would have loved to see this young American at 24 years old get his first professional win here. And I'm sure it's going to help him looking for a world tour ride next year after his team CCC is is going to stop at the end of the season. Stage 14, we saw Tim Wellens win in a, a great ride, really strong breakaway group. Mike Woods uh, pushed him all the way to the line there with a, a late attack, but you know, great to see him get his second win in the race. Stage 15, a long one, 230K, uh, longest stage in a grand tour of the season after the uh, the stage in, in, the, in the Giro was, was shortened. And uh, we saw Jasper Philipson from UAE take that one over Pascal Ackerman. So a few other sprinters up there. Uh, stage 16, Magnus Court. He had COVID not long before the race. So he bounced back uh, and took a late stage win for EF, who have been having, EF have been having a good season. 
this year. And that was a great win from him. You know, taking that opportunity, they've got Hugh Carthy up there on the podium at that point in the race. And talking about time bonuses, Bobby, Rogelik finished second, taking another bonus. He wasn't letting anything or any second uh, slip away in this Vuelta. And then stage 17, the big one. Yeah, stage stage 17 was was it. You know, if you if you had the legs, you had to make the the selection. And it was kind of two races going on. You had the breakaway up the road and the stage eventually being won by by David Godou from Francis de Joux, which is his second win in the last week of the Vuelta. But really we were looking at what was going on in the GC race and what a l- great last-ditch effort made by Richard Carapaz. It wasn't enough to take down Primoz Rolik in the overall, but um, I have to say there were some pretty tense moments there, and all I could keep thinking of was, you know, poor Primoz, if this happens to him again in a Grand Tour, him losing the lead on the penultimate day, he's going to have to use a good chunk of that Vuelta prize money to to get some you know, to go visit a shrink this, this off season. But luckily that didn't happen. You know, there were some tense moments. Sepkus finally was, let's just say human. Uh, He wasn't there being able to, to provide the same sort of assistance there to Primos and Primos was isolated, but he didn't crack. And I am really happy to see that result because, you know, for a guy that's had such an amazing season from the first race after the lockdown until now has just been so solid. Sure, he's had some little ups and downs here and there. And of course, the Tour de France was a was a big disappointment. But, you know, for a guy, I don't know if, you know, during this episode, we're going to go into the kind of overall season long awards, but he would definitely have my vote for stage race rider of the year. Yeah, I think you'd be hard pressed to to beat his consistency, and I agree. It was good to see him to see him seal seal the race there because it was touch and go. It was twenty five seconds for a minute there, with you know sort of a good good chunk of a K to go. That stage was savage. I know Dan Martin said when he hopped off the bike that that was one of his hardest stages in a Grand Tour ever, and he was I think fifth. Uh, overall in, in the in the finish. No, fourth overall in the finish there. So it was no country for old men, that's for sure. Uh, final stage, and Pascal Ackerman won a very tight sprint over Sam Bennett. Sam Bennett was relegated the other day um, and was had his chance to exact revenge, but couldn't overcome Pascal Ackerman. So yeah, that was a tight finish that neither knew who the winner was. So at the end of the race, we got Primoz Rogelik in first, Carapaz second, 24 seconds down. Hugh Carthy, huge Carthy. That was an exceptional ride, I think. Uh, outside of Primoz, I think Hugh Carthy definitely gets the breakout. Well, Hugh Carthy definitely gets the breakout ride for the uh, for the race, I think. But standout ride alongside Rogelik there, I think, in the uh, in the finish. And, and a possible career-changing result as well. I mean, Primoz and Richard Carapaz have won Grand Tours in the past, but the result by Hugh McCarthy, that was an eye-opener to a lot of people. And this wasn't just, you know, luck. He was on it from day one and rode brilliantly throughout. To go back on your point, EF Pro Cycling has had an amazing season and they're getting results from from everywhere. And it was it was it was just a very good thing to see a young rider ride with that sort of confidence. Obviously, the team backed him. And also Dan Martin, I think this was his best GC result in a Grand Tour, finishing fourth. So, you know, I have to say when this race calendar was put out and I saw that, you know, the tour 
Giro Vuelta, I'm like, man, oh man, how is this going to happen? How is this going to work? There's got to be something that's going to get in the way. But it didn't. And for the third Grand Tour of, of the year and the final race of the season, we, we had another great finish. So I don't know about you, but um, I'm a little bit ready to have a break from bike racing. You know, the, the, the guys that finished and all the, the promoters and the medical staff and volunteers just, just kept it a very, very safe race. I do want to give props to, to Sepp Kuss. I mean, we can't say enough good things about him. He finished 16th riding in support of his leader. That was the second top 20 result he's had in a Grand Tour uh, this year. Will Barta, you know, finished 22nd overall and his amazing TT kind of speaks volumes for itself. Michael Woods finished 34th, uh, got a stage win, plus another a bunch of other placings, all while supporting you, Carthy. And Logan Owen finished 105th, TJ Van Garden 113th. Also, like Michael Woods, he they were all in support of, of Hugh. Uh, young Ian Garrison from Decoinic Quick Step finished his first Grand Tour at the age of 22 in 127th place and surely got some some great experience. So, you know, great end of the season riding by those guys. Way to stick it out. Way to see it through to the end. And um, here we are, you know, at the end of the at the end of the season. But we did have the women's race as well, which was also great to see these these women getting their chance to to ride and to race at that level with that sort of attention this late in the year. Absolutely. They had the three-stage challenge by La Vuelta. Uh, stage one, 82-kilometer stage. I believe they only found out uh, what the stage looked like a couple of days before it started, and that was an uphill finish, uh, won by Lorena Wibes from Team Sunweb. Stage two was a nine-kilometer TT won by Lisa Brenauer from WNT Pro Cycling. Uh, and then stage three, same circuit as the men's at the finish there, 99 kilometers, won by Eliza Balsamo from Valcar Travel and Service. So overall was won by Lisa Brenauer ahead of Eliza Longo Borghini from Trek and third was Lorena Wibes. So yeah, the women's racing finishing off alongside the men's there. Um, which is exciting to see. And I believe that race, uh, the, the, the challenge by La Vuelta will continue next year in a uh, bigger and better guys. So that's great to hear. And yeah, I think, you know, as you said, I don't know if I, uh, I don't know if I could have done an- another week, another week of, uh, of bike racing, if I'm brutally honest. Um, I'm in need of a bit of a rest season uh, as well, but I am excited for what 2021 brings. And, you know, I think to the point of, obviously global pandemic and the uncertainty of racing but i think what cycling not only cycling but all sports has demonstrated over the course of this year that and 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 studio grady our guest talks about this a little later in the show but it's important to have these events and sports play an important role outside of just being uh, an entertainment factor i think for the world and and they can exist without a live audience um, and i think it's important that they do so i'm excited and confident that However, racing returns in the 2021 season, it'll be exciting. And so with that brings us today's guest. He is a name that needs no mention in terms of uh, his stature within the sport of cycling, and that is Aussie Stuart O'Grady. Welcome to Fizzo, Stuart O'Grady. How are you doing these days, mate? Yeah, good, Bobby. I love it every time we talk. You put on your best Aussie accent, which is pretty average. (laughs) I'm sorry. Every time I talk to you or think about you, the Aussie accent or the very, very poor, probably offensive Aussie (laughs) accent comes out in me. And pretty much that's all I've got. But after being teammates with you guys for so long, you know, uh, 
old habits die hard. We we did have you, and I mean Jens was speaking his you know German Berlinska Aussie as well. I mean you know it was pretty funny around the table when um, when all the boys were speaking English. <laughs> oh, Magnus Bagstedt was the best. Like he basically spoke English with an Aussie accent. I mean you guys were were so close, and um, yeah, those were those were good times. But uh, hey, listen, I know we're not really here to talk about past career highlights, but you know our listeners that don't know. Stuart O'Grady had a very long and successful career, starting out with the Aussie track program in the 90s and winning medals in the 92 and 96 Olympics. That transitioned over to a professional road career with French team Gan, which then became Credit Agricole, and that's where we were teammates in 2000 and 2001. You had the yellow jersey multiple times in 2004 and 2005. You went to Cofidis and won an Olympic gold medal in the Madison event on the track with, with Graham Brown. 2006, we become teammates again at Team CSE, which became Team CSE Soxo Bank. And that was where Stewart won Paris-Roubaix in 2007 and was part of Carlos Sastra's winning Tour de France team in 2008. Then he switched to Leopard Trek for a year, along with the Schleck brothers and, and Fabian and that whole crew. And then in 2012, 2013, uh, he went to Green Edge, where he ended his career at Green Edge. So all in all, 17 tour starts. He only had two DNFs. And one I remember very, very clearly in 2000, uh, that he finished the 2000 Tour de France stage with a broken collarbone for 70, 70 kilometers. So if there was a hard man in the sport, look no further than, than Stuart O'Grady. But Stuart, what happened in 2007? I know we're getting older. We have glasses on now or, you know, what, what happened in 2007? I forgot that other DNF that you had. Uh, yeah, well, both saw me go out in an ambulance, but it was 2000 where we had a big crash. There was a big pile up in the feed zone. Um, I went over the handlebars with Jan Kasipu and, you know, we had the Sydney Olympics coming up. I knew I'd broken something, but there was no way my, my mind was letting me stop. I just couldn't pull out. I just couldn't click out. So hopped on the bike and just got in like the, you know, laid my, my left arm on the on the bike like these, you know, you do time trial mode. And the guys, Jan Kaspu actually helped me a lot, pushed me up a few of the climbs and managed to get to the finish. But yeah, it was, it was busted and I had to pull out, but got a pin put through it the next day and then lined up in Sydney Olympics. So still managed to get to the Olympics. Didn't have my best. It was probably my worst Olympic performance, but probably blame that on the broken collarbone, I guess. But yeah, obviously 07 before that was, you know, Roubaix. So it was a big, it was a big emotional year, that's for sure. Did I get that wrong though? In 2007, you also had a DNF. What was that ambulance ride about? I forget that one. Oh, that was a helicopter ride, that one, Bobby. No, that was, um, <laughs> no, I'm lucky to be here actually. That was, that was 90k an hour down the Cornet de Roseland. And for the, like once, once every Tour de France, actually one stage every Tour de France, I'd I don't know, something that had the right mix of wheat bix and coffee, but I'd climb all right. And that day I went over the top of the corner there to Rosalind in the front group. There's only about 30 riders left and it's not a steep climb. It was you know, more of a drag. <clears throat> Managed to get over it in the front group. So I went back to get bottles for, for Carlos and, and whoever else was up the front. Um, and then while I was coming past the guys, Sergey, even though I've actually swerved to miss a hole as I was kind of in the in the tuck mode doing 90k an hour and he took out my front wheel you know obviously catapulted me did a big high side shattered all that side of my body and then I hit a pole and that just exploded everything so it's the only time I you know to this day 
you know, I, I thought things were bad. Um, you know, I couldn't had no feeling in my legs. Uh, it was just a world of pain. And next minute, I'm being helicoptered off to Chambry, where I spent the next two weeks in intensive care. Yeah, let, let's uh, switch the topic then. Um, uh, <laughs> wait, Thanks we, for bringing we, that one up. It's yeah, sorry. Here and now I'm getting sweaty palms already. <laughs> <laughs> but with all those accolades that you did experience during your career that I just mentioned, is there one that sticks out as your favorite result or achievement? I mean, you you kind of ran the gauntlet of track, road, Tour de France, classics. What what is that that thing that really sticks out in your head? Is that top one or maybe top three overall achievements in your career? Oh, look, yeah, it's a tough one because, you know, I was, I was brought up on the velodrome. The track was, you know, I'd never had any ambitions of being a, a Tour de France rider. That was never in my long game. Um, I'd heard about the Tour. I'd, you know, obviously seen it with magazines. My my dad was a, you know, pretty solid road racer. He was, you know, second in the state and road titles. And my uncle went to the Tokyo Olympics for the velodrome. So obviously, you know, I was surrounded by cycling, but my lifelong ambition was to go to the Olympics. You know, that was always the one thing which, you know, I just, I wanted to experience. I don't know why, but that's, uh, I guess, because no one had actually really ridden the Tour de France from Australia besides a very select few, and they didn't get much airtime back then. So, you know, certainly in Australia, we didn't have the, the media coverage of the Tour de France I could do these days, obviously. There weren't many Aussies in it. So, you know, there was no real reason to cover it. But the Olympics got massive coverage. You know, the Olympics is the pinnacle of sport. and and that, as a young kid, is what I dreamt of uh, competing in. So, you know, I competed in six Olympics, which I think, you know, is a record for, you know, anyone that's not riding a horse, you know. But to, to kind of finally win that gold medal was, was probably difficult to beat. You know, riding solo into Roubaix Velodrome is pretty cool as well. Um, and certainly, you know, I, I guess I always loved a challenge. I think you know that, Bobby. You chase dreams. And, you know, just the resilience and you try, try again. So I think I rode about 17 Roubaix as well and, and managed to win one. So I think, you know, the Roubaix and, and the Olympics are two different sports, to be honest. Um, so, you know, to be able to kind of switch from one and to the other back and forth over the years was, was a lot of fun. It was a massive challenge. But uh, probably those two races, um, you know, stand out. But, but in saying that, so was the team's time trial with, uh, you know, with Green Edge in our first ever Tour de France, um, you know, winning the team's time trial into Nice, uh, record speed, um, you know, at 40 years of age, uh, you know, winning winning again with the boys. That was, you know, in the first ever Australian team. That was That's right up there as well. Yeah, I mean, you are definitely one of those been there, done that sort of guys. Um, but now that you've transitioned out of the competitive side of the sport, what do you think of the current side the current state of the sport of cycling these days and especially that new generation of riders that seem to be so successful so early in their careers. Yeah, look, it, it, I guess uh, I'm glad I'm retired because, you know, the racing, there's no real control. You know, back in the day, there was a lot of respect for the kind of elder riders, you know, but especially in the classics, you kind of, you had your job, you fulfilled it and you got the hell out of the way and, and let the big guys go for it. These days, it's just, it, it's like the gloves are off. You know, it's like a UFC cage fight. There's no rules. Um, they attack at random moments. You know, you see a group attacking and I'm like, what the hell are they doing that for? And next minute, they got six minutes and they win the race. You know, there's, the kind of rule book's been almost thrown out the window. And especially this year, you know, watching these young guys come through, Pogacar, thinking that the classics were kind of going to be, oh, shit, there's no Cancellara or Boonen anymore. 
you know, who are we going to watch? Sargon's kind of, you know, an absolute legend, but isn't hitting his same heights. And then all of a sudden we've got Walt Van Aert and Alaphilippe and, um, and you know, Vanderpol. And it's like, holy shit, we got these guys for another 10 or 15 years. <laughs> how cool is this? It's just amazing. It's amazing how hard and fast they just seem to go. I guess they have got a plan, but it certainly doesn't look like they've got a plan when they're racing. So it's yeah. been interesting to watch. Yeah, the, the sport has definitely changed and um, perhaps become more more exciting than the old kind of controlled, you know, big teams, you know, in the classics, always the same guys in the, in the yeah. grand tours, always the same guys. But, you know, now, I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're talking about years ago, decades ago when, when we were racing, but, but now you have transitioned into a role of director, race director for one of the biggest and probably rider favorite races in the Peloton. And I, I know that, I know how personal that race was to you as a rider. I was a teammate of yours in 2001 when you won it for the second time. But now you're the race director. Like going from racing where we always used to kind of complain, oh, the race director does this, this is messed up. And now, <laughs> and now you're that guy. What, yeah. what, was your, what was your main motivation for taking this role? Good question. I mean, it, Tour Down Under is part of my life. I mean, it's, it's obviously in my own backyard. I'm an Adelaide boy. Um, you know, having I guess I was part of Mike's, you know, master plan from day one. You know, Mike Turter was, um, was his concept. It's his baby. And I've taken over the, the reins from Mike. But, you know, I helped him get this race up and going. You know, I had to go and sell this race to the European teams, you know, trying to sell it to Roger Leger, who's had a training camp in Po in the south of France for a hundred years, trying to be disruptive and say, "Hey, Roger, you know, let's go to Adelaide and bring the team down to this bike race. It's really cool." You know, he's like, ah, "What? But you stupid! You know, we've been going to France. Why would we do that?" And you know, my my picture was, "We once you're down there, you'll understand." You know, so I guess being a part of the being a part of the race from day one. I guess the last couple of years of my career, I guess I started thinking, you know, I'd like to take on the reins of this. I think I could. I think I can make a pretty cool race because we haven't we haven't actually raced down a lot of the roads, which I think are, are cool and exciting. Mick's kind of he's found a fantastic you know map around the state. Uh, it's always challenging. It's a fine balance between making the race not too crazy hard because the Europeans um, have just come out of winter and you know you can't make the stages too long and hard because it could also be forty degrees. So it's been a really good balance and the perfect mix. The team stay in the in the Hilton Hotel for two weeks. You know, they get looked after like they don't get looked after at any other race in the world. Um, it's just a really great event. Um, and it real and I'm really proud of it and always have been. And, you know, to have you guys come down and, you know, be able to kind of showcase my backyard, which no one had ever really seen before because we're on the other side of the world. Um, I got a lot of you know, a lot of pride out of that. And we do live in, a, you know, one of the best places in the, in the world and certainly the safest right now, that's for sure. But taking on the reins was, um, yeah, I, I'm really excited and proud and privileged to have the opportunity. I think I've created a really cool race for when we get the next one up and going. And, yeah, well, you know, I'll just, I guess I'll bring a bit of my European knowledge to, to tours to, you know, just try and tweak a few things. It certainly doesn't need to be redesigned or uh, you know you don't change something that's not broken but just a few little tweaks here and there and um and some pretty cool roads which i've got on on the menu and like bobby mentioned it before like how's it been um 
on the other side of the fence being you know like on the you know on do you have, um, do you have a different level of empathy for race organizer race organizers one now that you're on that side and then two are you able to kind of bridge that gap a little bit between between the riders and race organizers um and, and kind of see balance that a little better yeah i think so i mean look it's been a massive eye-opener i mean nobody no bike rider knows has a clue what goes on behind the scenes it is phenomenal um i mean the team that i've walked into here at tdu i'm, I'm so lucky i mean there's got to be 20 people um you know working on the event uh to walk into that office from the on the first day and kind of get given the keys um you know i've never run a race before so it was big shoes to fill obviously i have the experience i know what makes a good bike race and all the elements about the cycling part but i didn't have a clue about all the stuff behind the scenes and so, you know, they were so welcoming. They took me in, um, you know, everyone's really made me feel welcome and, and kind of, uh, you know, there's just so much stuff from the marketing, the commercial um, logistics, um, the sponsorship team, you know, I've kind of been able to, I guess, bring in a little bit of that with my network and connections and help in areas where, I, uh, let's say, other race directors may or may not help out much. Um, you know, I've been able to open up a few other avenues uh, with sponsorship and, and kind of help out with other areas where, yeah, you know, race caravan and, and fun things, things that I've seen at the Tour de France, you know, when I've been over there, obviously on the bike, but, you know, when we take the cycling tours, you know, also seeing from the other side of the fence. So kind of being able to bring in a whole new dimension to what race director is. And, you know, obviously great friends with a lot of the, the, the DSs and obviously great mates with a lot of the riders. So being able to walk in the Hilton and, you know, G'day, you want to catch up for a beer and, and sit down and just have a have a talk with the guys. I've got a relationship with, you know, being being a pro for 19 years. I pretty much know everybody that's that's involved, or, you know, from mechanics to swan years, pretty much every team. So having that connection and, and also, you know, I guess they give me a bit of respect for the career that I've had. So anything that I'm saying, I'm not making it up. You know, they know that I've been around the block a few times. So it's been a really interesting transition, but, you know, I'm, I'm just really looking forward to running my first TDU. With that, you kind of mentioned that you have some roads picked out, but how has that race developed from 1999 when you won it the first time to, to now? And what, what other little tricks do you have up your sleeves in terms of specifics besides what you've already mentioned? Yeah, look, oh, the race has developed massively. I mean, the moment it became World Tour, things just went to another level. I mean, guys were stopping their seasons early. You know, they, they were stopping in September to have their month off early. So they were beginning preparations to be, you know, bang on the money for, for, for a race in January because at the end of the day, it's World Tour points. You know, points in Adelaide are the same as points at Paris-Nice. It doesn't matter how old your race is or the history behind it. So all of a sudden, the emphasis changed from, you know, back in our day, it was a few guys coming down for a summer holiday and, you know, get a tan down at the beach and clock up a few Ks, um, you know, visit a few wineries and, and still training our butts off every day, you know, because the weather's so great here, you, you know, you you're, you could afford to train all day and, and relax at night. But now it's now it's full full on, you know, now it's Formula One level. It's the guys come down, uh, they're finely tuned, they're ready to race. They're not here, you know, no one on the start line is kind of coming down for a training camp everyone's fit and ready to go uh, that's probably been the biggest change i mean just the, the seriousness of the event how fast the guys are racing i guess for the other side of the question is what have i got in store well i can't tell you my secrets but 
it, let's just say that there's a few things that haven't been done at the TDU. Obviously, time trials would love to bring in at some stage, but there's a bit of a tricky part there with you know with time trial bikes bringing another uh, <laughs> what 120 bikes down to Adelaide. Um, you know, it's about another 150 thousand dollars worth of freight. So um, you know, there's a whole new other aspect of that as well. But there's a few roads which um, you know for the locals we haven't touched before and I'm looking forward to bringing it there. So you have a great race this year. You take over the reins. Now the pandemic hits and it was announced not too long ago that next year is going to be postponed. How far along were you in the planning for this year's event before you had to make that decision? And what were like those major influencers or the writing on the wall that said, you know what, as much as we'd love to do this, it's just not going to work and we should, you know, cut bait here. Yeah, again, you know, there's a whole a whole bunch of reasons. Um, look, the race is ready to hit go. I mean, we, we designed everything. We were, we were literally waiting to launch the stage, you know, stage by stage and, and launch the race. But with the pandemic um, kind of taking off again in Europe, uh, you could just kind of see we better just wait on a minute um, and things just get kept getting pushed back later and later for the launch. Normally we launch the race during the Tour de France while everybody, you know, is, is, you know, talking about the Tour de France and get excited about cycling. So we kind of had to push that back one month. And then, you know, when the numbers started going up in Europe again, and, you know, I've been in more contact with the guys in Europe this year than, than I was when I was living over there, I think. I mean, and every time I spoke to them, they're like, mate, Europe's just going on about life as normal. You know, no one's really caring about COVID and the beaches are full and you know they were, they were tackling it a very different way to we were down here in Australia. Australia went bang straight into kind of safety and, and security mode and we managed to pretty much nip it in the butt. Um, obviously Victoria's had a bit of a tough time but nothing in comparison to the numbers obviously in Europe. We just don't have that kind of living density and population and we're isolated. So we've got a few things pretty going well for us but you know, we were ready to launch the race, but then, you know, as we kind of started things really starting to skyrocket in Europe, um, you know, we realized the teams that they're okay at the moment, they're living in bubbles and, you know, they're, they're doing the best job and they're finishing the Tour de France. They're, they finished the Giro and God knows how, but they just finished the Vuelta with hundreds of thousands of cases. But, but we also realized that as soon as the racing's finished, everyone's going to go home and be part of the community. So the chances of transmission are probably going to be a lot higher. Australia basically isn't letting anyone into the country, which, you know, so anybody that does enter, if you can get a flight, has to quarantine for 14 days, hard quarantine. So you get taken from the airport, police escort in a bus with your plane of people to a hotel, which is like maximum security. You're not allowed to leave your room. So, you know, trying to picture... Um, you know, 400 riders, staff flying into Adelaide and then having to quarantine for two weeks didn't really make sense either. So, you know, work with SA Health and the South Australian Police, um, you know, we kind of tried to manage that the guys could still be chaperoned while out training uh, so they could be in the hotels, but, you know, we'd get them out, police escort, they could still get, get their training under the belt. But I think, you know, that was just kind of endangering the community and bringing risk into South Australia that we probably didn't need to either. So the more we thought about it, we thought we'll actually just send the teams a letter. But I guess going back a step further, uh, the UCI for the first time in history communicated that 
that Tour Down Under was not going to be mandatory to attend. And that was a pretty key moment. So the minute that they kind of mentioned that, you know, if you're a team who's just finished racing now uh, in November and you've got to be coming, preparing a new equipment, clothing for 2021 and flying to Australia and potentially quarantining for two weeks, all of a sudden the picture started to sway a little bit like, well, actually it's probably not the best time to be traveling down to Australia. So a lot of the teams um, decided they would prefer not to come down, which is fully understandable. So with that, with a lot of the, the majority of the teams declining that they wanted to come down and the fact that, you know, we've got zero cases in South Australia, I think we've only had about 450 active in total with zero community cases. Um, you know, the risk of flying in people from Europe uh, as well, just everything just got too, too hard um, and there was just too much risk involved. Is there an opportunity this year now that you don't have to run the race, is there an opportunity to to do something bigger in, in 2022 or make some changes that maybe you were going to look further in the future to, to do? Yeah, we'll, we'll be back. The World Tour event will be back bigger and better in 2022 and we're going to throw all the eggs at it. I mean, it's going to be, it'll be huge. Um, and obviously we're really excited. You know, the race isn't cancelled, it's just postponed and that's kind of what we're, what we're saying at the moment. So, you know, all the teams are messaging quite often, you know, they're really sad they're not going to be coming down here because it is a highlight. You know, it's winter in Europe and a lot of the teams absolutely loved. I mean, as Bobby said right at the start of the show, it was one of the favourite races on the calendar. You know, it was a lot of fun. You raced, you trained hard, but it's just a beautiful environment. It's nice. It's summer. You know, the guys get lots of training in and, you know, they get to chill out outside and enjoy South Australia at the same time. So, you know, we'll be back bigger and better uh, for the upcoming January. We're, we're working our butts off at the moment to create something pretty cool, um, you know, more of a festival of cycling. So we're going to have something. We're going to have a race which will be concentrated on the domestic scene. So, you know, a great opportunity for all the local teams um, nationally to come down here and because uh, the borders are opening it or pretty much all open now. Um, so, you know, give those guys a platform to come down and, you know, it'll be a trim down. It'll be a fun, fun version. Um, but I think we're, what's really important here is we need to we need to kickstart 2021 <laughs> in a bloody good way. And you know, just a festival of, of sport with cycling as the theme. And you know, so hopefully all the cycling enthusiasts here will still go. You know what? Been going to Adelaide for 20 years. Let's get our accommodation. Let's get our Airbnb. Go down and, and enjoy the wineries and what South Australia has to offer. So. We're currently working away on that. But yeah, we'll have something to keep the heart beating for cycling in, in Australia. Um, you know, I'm kind of saying it's like going from MotoGP to superbike level. You know, this isn't the this isn't the full world tour stressful event. This is the one where you bring your barbecue along and, you know, you have a beer on the back of your <laughs> out the back of your Ute and watch the racing go past, you know. Um, and just create a really cool vibe and, and hopefully, you know, we'll give give the um, the cyclist a good platform to to just race. I mean, the Australian teams haven't actually raced on a road this year. You know, it's all been on Swift. So for them as well, the opportunity just to get out there and, you know, get your legs burning up a real hill with real wind, um, I think everyone's looking forward to that. I mean, if being a, a race director wasn't enough, um, I also understand that you're in collaboration or you're part of the, the Moomoo Cycling Tours project. Tell us a little bit about this project and, and how you're involved with it. 
Yeah, so joined up with uh, Moomoo Cycling, oh, maybe it must be five years ago now. Um, and Moomoo is all about uh, taking guests into the inner sanctum of pro cycling. So obviously with my connections um, and friends in the peloton and the cycling world, you know, I guess we're, this is where I guess we differ from other tour operators. We have people from all over the world, uh, US, um, South America, Australia, you know, obviously Europe as well. A lot from Canada come on our tours and, you know, the, um, it's, it's, it's really high, I guess, good quality, great accommodation. It, it's all the, all the bells and whistles, but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's us. We're an official Tour de France operator, for example. Um, so, you know, we've all got accreditation. We go on the state on the actual start line before the, the, the pros ride off and we'll ride the first 50k of the stage. We'll watch the pros go past. Um, you know, we ride over the last, the final kilometre and then up in hospitality and have a can of pain and a, and a glass of bubbles while we watch the finish. I mean, it's, it's really, it kind of ticks all the right boxes. So we do the classics, Flanders and Roubaix. Um, obviously, you know, with my connections there and, being a past winner, I get to take the guests into places where the public can't go. So into the showers and, you know, I know that sounds funny, but, um, you know, into the old historical showers where, you know, Eddie Merckx's and, uh, you know, Moses and everybody's sat and had a shower before. It's, it's a pretty historic, like a, like a museum, to be honest. So just giving guests the ultimate cycling experience, um, you know, it's a lot more than a cycling tour, that's for sure. Yeah, I bet. And I mean, how is that for you, like a bit of a trip down memory lane or is it like, again, like being on the other side of that fence and having those connections with people still in the racing and you're still sort of around it? Like, how? yeah, is that, what's 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 that sort of experience like for you going back into into all of these kind of historical places for you? Yeah, it's actually really, I've really enjoyed it. I mean, I, I get a I get a real thrill out of it. I mean, you know, when, when you're racing, you're so, you're so focused, you know, you, you know, you, you don't actually take in what's around you. You know, we're, we're in some of the most beautiful places in the world and all your scenes, you know, lycra and, and you're just flying along the road and you're in the, you know, you're in the hurt locker and suffering. And, and now all of a sudden I'm on the other side of the fence and we're in these places and you can get to walk around at night, explore them, uh, you know, eat in the nice restaurants, have a nice glass of wine. Um, and, and, you know, taking people, I guess, to meet again, it's, it's that comes back to that whole, pride aspect i mean i get a lot of um pride taking the, the guests around and and meeting you know i see as a friend well they see as a cycling legend um you know so we, we have lunch with eddie Merckx, for example um you know in the in the classics um you know he comes along as a friend uh, you know i just take him a really nice bottle of penfolds grange which is the best wine we have on offer in australia and, and eddie comes along and sits down and has a chat with us you know it's and it, you kind of it's one of those you sit back and pinch yourself moments. Um, it's things like that, which, you know, money can't buy, I guess, but being able to walk around and, you know, Hey, Phil's your bear, how are you going? And then, you know, Phil rides over and stops and next minute we're having a conversation and, and the guests get that real, uh, yeah, money can't buy experience. I love it because I'm not riding and I'm not hurting. So, um, you know, I'm walking around in shorts and, uh, and, and exploring the world that I, I'm seeing it from a completely different angle. It's really weird and a good question because, you know, I used to hate the mountains. I detested mountains. The only mountain I like or hill is going downhill. 
Um, but now I go back and I'm and, and I'm like, give me my bike, and I'm riding up Alpe d'Huez, I'm riding up the Glibier, and and you stop. Like the first time I actually stopped and pulled my phone out and took a photo, I was waiting for someone to yell at me, like, you know, hurry up, get back on your bike. I'm like, hey, how cool is this? I can just stop and take a photo, and no one's gonna yell at me. You know, you can get to the top of the mountain and, and have a beer or some foie gras. You know, it's like you're doing all these things which go against the grain of when you're a professional cyclist. So to be able to go back to my my world and do it and have fun, it, it I love it. It's really cool. And that's what I love about cyclists in general, right? Like you're once you're a cyclist, you seem to always be a cyclist. And when we get together or when we see our friends, it's just, you know, a, a great down memory lane sort of sort of experience but you know you playing it forward and taking a role um i must say a more mature role being a being a race director you know playing playing the passion of cycling forward exposing new people to what was at one time our world you know that that world has definitely changed there's no doubt about it but um i think the takeaway here is just the sport is more than just watching these guys race and and yeah. the, the extremity it's out there and and smelling the roses taking those pictures not everybody is going to be a professional cyclist but i just love the way that over these years of knowing you now you're a race promoter you're a tour runner you know you're you're playing it forward and that's what what cycling's all about and i think once we do come out of this covid situation I think people will be much more aware of that and appreciative of, of those sort of efforts. So uh, keep doing what you're doing, Stewie. It's great. Thank you. No, it's, it is. It's really, it's really cool. And, and, you know, for me being, um, again, you know, I guess the, the normal race director wouldn't go and, and run tours around Europe. You know, I couldn't see Prudhomme bringing guests of people down to Australia. But that also gives me, maintains a really strong connections with the guys in Europe. You know, they see me making the effort to come over and, you know, uh, look, you know, cycling's my life. It's all I know. And I'm bloody proud of it. And, you know, seeing the guys come over and, and take their time out to stop and say hello shows the mutual respect we have for each other. And, and that never is never going to go away. But being able to go back and, and enjoy cycling from a different point of view and maintain those relationships and, you know, running into Stephen Roach, who was one of my idols at the Giro, you know, I'm like, hey, Stephen, how you going? You know, you should come down Adelaide next year. I'm going to be the race director. He's like, yeah, no worries. So, you know, you just you, you have these random bumping into to old legends and people and, and you know, hopefully I'll be able to get Stephen Roach down to Adelaide one year over a simple, you know, running into him in the Giro. Yeah, man, that's what it's all about. Well, Stewie, thank you so much for coming on. It's always great to talk to you. Hopefully our paths will cross and, um, you know, if you ever need an ambassador for Tour Down Under, you know, you, you got my, you got my number because uh, that was definitely my favorite race of the, my entire career. So um, we might we might have to make a reunion and we'll make it in Adelaide. How's that? Oh, boy, I don't think anyone would complain. Maybe our wives and our children, but um, none of us would complain at all. Uh, thanks for having us, mate. It's been really good to catch up. Yeah, cheers, man. That was great. Thank you. And that's it. That's all the time we have for this week. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And thanks again to Stuart O'Grady for joining us. You can find all of our past episodes, as well as a ton of other fantastic cycling journalism over at velonews.com. Please continue to show your support by subscribing to this program. And please spread the word by telling your friends about us. You can reach out to us on social media, Fizopod on Twitter, at that is Gus and at Bobby.Julik. 
on Instagram. Get in touch as you have been, feedback, suggestions, etc. We do love it. We take it all on board. Until next week, thank you so much for listening. I'm Angus Morton. And I'm Bobby Julik. Thanks, everyone. Stay safe, stay sane, stay calm, and don't forget to put your socks on. Traveling in a fight up gummy On a hippie trail head full of zombies I met a strange lady She made me nervous She took me in and gave me breakfast And she said Do you come from a land down under Where women go and men wonder Can't you hear, can't you hear that thunder You gotta run, you gotta take cover